you will grab your worship folder or preferably open up your copy of God's Word or fire up the app on your phone or whatever it is to John chapter 12. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week that of course culminates this next Sunday in Easter. Today is the remembrance of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Thursday, Monday, Thursday, which we'll have a service commemorating here at 6 p.m. and would welcome you back uh, for the second, we're, we're feasting this week, the second opportunity this week for you to have the Lord's Supper and to feed on Christ by faith will be this Thursday night at 6 where we commemorate the Last Supper and, and Jesus' betrayal and his arrest and then, of course, uh, Good Friday, uh, the day of his crucifixion, uh, Holy Saturday, remembered by some as, as the day that Jesus' body uh, laid in the grave, and then, of course, at last, Resurrection Day. Uh, and we'll celebrate that two times, 7 a.m. over at the gardens at the, the amphitheater there, Centennial Park, 7 a.m., a, a joint service with New City Fellowship and others. Uh, the Reverend Todd Brown from New Mount Zion Baptist Church will be preaching that morning, so welcome you there uh, and then, of course, for our gathered worship at 10.30 on Easter Sunday. Well, we're already in John's Gospel. That's a good place to stay. Uh, we just finished chapter 5. We're going to jump forward a little bit uh, to some passages this week that are more appropriate for the days uh, that we are remembering and celebrating. So this morning we're in John 12 for the triumphal entry. Jesus has traveled from Bethany, nearby Bethany, not too far away, into Jerusalem. Bethany's where he was, of course, for the amazing and miraculous resurrection of Lazarus, his friend. And now he is traveling into Jerusalem for the final week of his earthly life and ministry. It's noteworthy. The triumphal entry is one of the few things that all four Gospels make a record of. And as such, it's, it's quite familiar. Right? We, we know this. And, and the danger that's always there in something that we know so well and something that is so familiar is that our eyes might glaze over a bit and we might miss what God's Word has for us, which indeed is a great feast. So regardless of whether this is the first time you've heard it, I doubt that's true for many of you. Or the 99th time you've heard it, I bet that's probably what we're looking at. There's good news here. There's great news. There's a feast here for us. If God will grant us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. Stand if you're able for the reading of God's word, please. John chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there... They came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. 
Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Would you please pray with me? Father, we give you thanks for this day and indeed for this portion of your word. Help us to believe all those things about it, that it's true, that it's trustworthy, that it does have authority in our lives. And would you help us this morning to see Jesus? He seems pretty clearly presented here on the page. Would you help us this morning specifically to understand what it means for him to be king, to be our king? what following him as king looks like, what that might entail, what we might should expect and be prepared for. Oh, would you come and do a work of grace in all of our hearts this morning? We ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Great expectations. Expectations are rather important things. Realistic ones are crucial. Unmet ones can be catastrophic. Husbands, wives, how much of the conflict in your marriages pertains to expectations? Expectations can make or break all kinds of relationships, um, employee-employer relationships. Right? Expectations are big there. Even here in church, expectations, right? What's expected of the members? What do the members expect? What's expected of the pastor or of the leaders? What do they expect of the members Are the expectations realistic? Are the expectations met? Or do they go unmet? In the the triumphal entry of Jesus, expectations play a big role. Now, I already mentioned the familiarity of this passage. So let's put some of that familiarity to use. Let's take the three most familiar things about the passage and let's drill down into them. And let those things guide us. We're going to look at palm branches. You've got an outline in your worship folder. These cries of Hosanna. And this donkey on which Jesus sits. Expectations factor into all three in a big, big way. Let's start with the palm branches. Uh, Verse 13, this big crowd goes out to meet Jesus. 
He'd been attracting big crowds for a long time now, but they're only getting bigger, especially with what just happened in the chapter preceding chapter 12. Chapter 11, as many of you know, the amazing resurrection of Lazarus, who wasn't just dead, he was really dead. He was four days in the grave dead. And now he's come back to life. And so this crowd that has assembled, this crowd that is already large because Passover is at hand, and so the population of Jerusalem swells by some tenfold with these pilgrims who are coming to the festival, to the feast. They hear Jesus is coming and they grab something on their way to meet him. They grab palm branches, this symbol of victory and peace, this symbol especially of bestowing or acknowledging kingly power on someone or of someone. And this is confirmed by what they're saying. This is what they're thinking when they grab palm branches. They're acknowledging him as king. Now, one of the questions in my mind this week as I'm trying to process this passage, thinking it over, kept asking myself in light of this passage, who wants Jesus as king. Who wants Jesus as king? And I thought about it in terms of three different groups of people. First, the crowd, then the religious leaders, and finally us. Which of these groups wants Jesus as king? Well, we've already seen that the crowd definitely does. They want Jesus as king at least as far as what they understand what his being king looks like. More on that in a minute. But we also see at the beginning and the end of our passage today that the religious leaders definitely do not want him as king. And that's actually a pretty big understatement. Not only do they not want him as king, they want him dead. They want him not as anything. They've been plotting and planning his death for nearly the entirety of his earthly ministry. And now, to add insult to injury, because they are so hardened in their unbelief, they are so maddened in their opposition to Jesus, we see in verse 10, they're even planning now to kill Lazarus, the one that Jesus just raised from the dead. Clearly, a divine act, right? If anything should have stopped them in their tracks and caused them to say, "Um, hey, fellas, maybe we should reconsider this guy, right? It would be this. But what absolute folly. Uh, Calvin says it is worse than insane fury for them to say, well, maybe if we get rid of the evidence people might forget what he did. If we kill the man he raised from the dead, right? this is just stupid. And it's one of those things that would be funny if it were not so tragic, because on one level, it's understandable why the the religious leaders, why this idea would have even come up in conversation about killing Lazarus. See, many of the religious leaders were Sadducees, Right? There are Pharisees, there are Sadducees, these groups of religious belief and, and thought. 
Well, the Sadducees made up a large part of the religious leaders of the day. And one of their distinguishing beliefs, one of their benchmark things that they believed was that there is no resurrection of the dead. Well, about that. See, there's this guy walking around. Quite an embarrassment to them. And so with the swelling crowd because of Lazarus' resurrection and the growing crowd that is now coming out to meet Jesus as he enters Jerusalem, the religious leaders are growing more and more exasperated. They're throwing their hands up in frustration and disgust, and you see it there in verse 19. It comes to a head. They are furious. The whole world's going after him. Nothing that we have done to try to put the kibosh on his popularity has worked. We have failed. It's like they're mad at themselves for not having done something more. And so verse 19 is, is a, you know, it's, a, it's an exaggerated statement. It's hyperbole, right? The whole world has not gone after him in one sense, right? His his followers are growing, the crowd is growing, but that's still a pretty tiny percentage of the world's population. So on one level, it's exaggeration. But we've already seen multiple examples of how John loves to use irony. And so on another level, the whole world is going after Jesus. And in the verses that follow our passage today, which we'll get to a lot later when we're in our regular flow of going through John. But in the verses that follow after today's passage, there's a pivotal event in Jesus' ministry and in John's gospel. I've mentioned to you already that throughout John's gospel, Jesus keeps saying, my hour has not yet come. Right? Uh, That comes up again and again, and it affects where Jesus goes and what he does and how he's interacting with people. And he, and he says, my hour has not yet come. Well, in these next verses, Jesus changes his tune. And he says, for the first time, my hour has come. And what precipitates that is the arrival of some Greeks, some Gentiles, who are seeking Jesus. They come and they say, we want to see Jesus. So it's not just his own people, the Jews, but now the Gentiles, the nations. Indeed, the world is coming to him. And that's what causes Jesus to say, my hour has come. My hour, which means the time of my death. And so that's part of the reason, his hour having now come, that's part of the reason that Jesus doesn't refuse what the crowd is saying about him being the king of Israel. When we get back to our regularly scheduled working through John, we'll be in chapter 6. He's going to feed the 5,000. The crowd, after he feeds the 5,000, is in a frenzy. They're so excited. They're ready then to take him and make him king. Jesus knows it, and he disappears. He withdraws because his hour has not yet come. He accepts their praise. 
He accepts their calling him king on this day because his hour is here. The crowd on this day wants Jesus as king. The religious leaders want him dead and definitely not king. But what about us? Do we want Jesus as king? That's a hugely important question. See, when Scripture speaks of Jesus as king, that's not a metaphor. That's not purely symbolic. It's meant very literally. Sovereign. Lord. Supreme ruler. Do we want Jesus to be that for us? Is that how you are regularly thinking about your relationship to Jesus? That he is your king? That he is the one and only one calling the shots? Keep that question in the back of your mind as we move now from palm branches to the cries and shouts of Hosanna. Now, there's quite an expectation with these cries of Hosanna. You see what the crowd cries out in verse 13 is very well known to them. They didn't make this up on the spot. It's from a psalm. It's from a psalm that's regularly used for pilgrims who are arriving in Jerusalem for Passover. It comes from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. It says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so this save us, we pray, in Hebrew, is hoshiana. Hoshiana. Into Greek, it gets just transliterated, just taking those sounds and making the closest word that they could come up with in Greek. Hosanna. Hosanna. Save us now. So they're crying out for salvation, and they're calling Jesus King of Israel because they earnestly believe that He is the one who is indeed bringing salvation and redemption for Israel. They think he is the long-awaited one. They have an expectation. They have great expectations of Jesus, of rescue, and of deliverance. They expect the conquering of their greatest enemy. Their expectation is that Jesus will bring an end, finally, to Roman occupation. Those palm branches... Y'all, their symbolism is deep. And it has a long history for the Jewish people. I I could recount kind of some boring historical details for you. But suffice it to say that the palm had become for the Jews a national symbol. A symbol associated with their attempted, and failed, insurrection and revolt against this Roman occupation of their land. Their picking up palm branches that day was essentially essentially their version of donning red baseball caps embroidered with Make Israel Great Again. 
right? That's essentially what they were doing, picking up and waving those palm branches upon Jesus' arrival that day. That's what they expected Jesus to do for them. Fix our problems, Jesus, especially our greatest problem, the defeat of our greatest enemy. That's what they expected their king to do for them. Now, back to us. What do we expect our king to do for us? Do you want Jesus as your king? Many of us will eagerly embrace him as Savior. But what about king? Perhaps we'd be okay with Jesus as king if he does the right things for us. If he's a good problem solver. If he takes care of our enemies. See, expectations, they're important. Now, how does Jesus respond to their palm branch waving and their save us now crying? Well, he sits down on a donkey. The crowd that day was electric. It was buzzing with anticipation and all of their expectations. Jesus could have said the word and revolt would have sprang to life like crazy. He could have easily poured gasoline on their fire and really hyped them up and whipped them up into a frenzy. But instead, his sitting on the donkey is a huge, confusing bucket of water that he dumps on their fire. The king of Israel should come into town mounted on a war horse, ready to wage battle. But here we have expectation crashing head-on with reality. And in fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus comes not on a war horse, but on a donkey. And so verse 15 is a quote from the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9. Your king comes on a donkey. Now, as a little aside, do note how Jesus fulfills every bit of the prophecies about him, even the small little details. Right? He fulfills it all, right? The, the, the fulfilling of the small details, I think, just buttresses our faith in the big details. Right? But why a donkey? Why was that the prophecy in the first place? Why not a war horse? Wouldn't that be more fitting for his majesty? And isn't he worthy of, of a great steed? It was a donkey because the crowd that day needed to see, because we need to see, that our greatest enemies are not earthly foes. Our biggest problem isn't something that has consequences only for this life. See, that's why it, it had to be a donkey. 
See, if Jesus had come in riding into town on a war horse, ready to wage war and to solve their temporary and earthly problem of Roman occupation, to be the expected political and military Messiah, solving for them a temporary problem, how would they ever look to him to solve their greatest and eternal problem? How would they ever know to look to him to defeat their greatest enemies, enemies of the spiritual realm, not of the physical? Enemies not of political or national or military origin, but the enemies of sin and rebellion in their hearts and the death, the eternal separation from God that those enemies had earned for them, Problems of a spiritual realm that have eternal consequences. It had to be a donkey. Because you see, Jesus is is a king of a different kind of kingdom. And therefore, his entrance as king had to be a, a different kind of entrance. Not one of pomp and splendor and wealth. No, it had to be something jarringly different. It had to be something to make them say... Wait, what? This isn't what we expected. What what, what is he doing? Riding into town on a donkey marks the beginning of a week full of humiliation, full of the exact opposite of everything they expected a triumphant king to do. See, this this king did not come to conquer. He came to to be conquered. He he came, in essence, to, to be defeated, at least from all earthly appearances. Verse 16, the disciples didn't get it. It's not the first time they, they don't get it. It's not the last time. That they couldn't make sense of this. Now, do you think they were especially dull? Do do you think they just came from a less intelligent segment of the population? Or might they represent humanity, us, well? The the disciples couldn't make sense of it. Today, we can make a bit more sense of things historically, right? We've got the whole completed Bible. We can get it on a historical and a factual level. We can make sense of, oh, well, this is what happened then. And, oh, yes, that makes sense to us why this happened then. And We get the fact that his defeat was actually very much victory and triumph. We get that for then. We still still struggle getting that for today, I think. And what happens now and what it's like to have Jesus as our king today. We might not be living in an occupied land, but we've all got problems that need fixing. We've all got enemies that we sure would love to be conquered. And some of us are ready to acknowledge Jesus as king, provided 
he'll take care of some of our problems. Sure do need this sickness of mine to be defeated. I need this financial difficulty of mine. Well, I just, I need it to go away. King Jesus, could you, could you do that for me? That'd be great. Uh, this wayward child of mine, ooh, mm, pulling my hair out. Uh, this, this loveless marriage that I feel trapped in. See, sometimes the deal that we make or that we try to make is explicit, right? That, that's how some of us think that they are coming to Jesus, right? Oh, if you'll just fix this, I swear, I promise, I'll be in church every Sunday, I will give, you know, we make these wild promises. If only our expectations will be met. Sometimes it's explicit like that. Oftentimes it, the, the deal goes unsaid, right? It's never verbalized at such, but we just have this expectation that if I follow Jesus, well, life should turn out like I want it to. And then if it doesn't, well, then I guess he's not really worth having as king now, is he? If he won't rule in my favor. Jesus sitting on the donkey that day is emblematic of what he would do during Holy Week, but not just what he would do during Holy Week, but of his entire reign as king leading up to and including now. See, oftentimes with Jesus, the path to ultimate victory is through defeat, not around it. Right? His strength is found, where is it found? In the middle of our weakness. Not in avoiding weakness or keeping us from weakness. The sufficiency of his grace is found not in our plenty, but in our lack and in our need. And that is what prepares us for an eternity with him. That is the thing that prepares us for a a joyous eternity with him. Don't trade that. Don't squander it. Don't try to negotiate it away or bargain with God. Because see, by trying to carve out paradise for ourselves now or expecting King Jesus to give us paradise now, Y'all, he didn't meet the crowd's expectations that day. And he might not meet your expectations in this life in the way that you want him to. He's not holding out on you. He's not being cruel or unkind. He wants you to find your ultimate and eternal satisfaction and deliverance in Him. He is King. And He does come with deliverance. He does come with rescue and salvation to any and all who will receive Him as as King. Let's pray.
Oh, King Jesus, help us to understand who you are. Help us to understand what your reign looks like. Help us to understand your power and your goodness, even if you don't rule in the way that we wished you would have. Lord Jesus, help us to trust that you're not holding out on us, but that you are leading us like a true and a good and a faithful king. You are leading us to our deepest and fullest and eternal satisfaction in you. Help us, we pray. Amen. Please stand and let's sing in preparation for coming to the table.